This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we have a guest from outside of neurosurgery, Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum, who is a practicing cardiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. And this episode, we kind of book this on the fly. Um, a few days ago in the New England Journal, Dr. Rosenbaum authored a wonderful perspective editorial on necessary and unnecessary discomforts in training for any medical specialty in, in a residency. And I read this with great joy. It was actually mentioned in an interview that we just did on this podcast that hasn't aired yet, and I won't say who the guest is, so we don't spoil that. But I, I sent this out to all the residents of my program. It's creating a buzz on X, nay, Twitter. And I think that it's just a wonderful, clear message that we really need in medical training right now. So I hunted down Dr. Rosenbaum's email from a friend of mine, Faith Robinson, who's at Harvard for her neurosurgical residency. Thank you and shout out to Faith, who's been on the show as well. And here we are today, kind of recording on the fly in real time right after this essay was published. So Dr. Rosenbaum, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming, a cardiologist among neurosurgeons, and please take a moment to say hello to our listeners. Hi, thank you so much for having me, and I'm really happy to get to talk to you. So let's just lay this all out on the table. The essay was called Being Well While Doing Well, Distinguishing Necessary from Unnecessary Discomfort in Training. And I will crib some of your words where I think you kind of state the thesis of the article, which was uh, maintaining our commitment to excellence while remedying our failures requires distinguishing unnecessary harms from necessary discomforts. And why has it become so hard to make these distinctions? So let's just set the stage right there, Dr. Rosenbaum. How do you classify things within training as necessary or unnecessary when they are discomfortable? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes that's personal. I think we all know that people have different thresholds for discomfort, which is also why we all choose different specialties in the first place. Um, and I think actually a sidebar to all of this is that, you know, as medical schools get rid of call, for instance, and that, that has sort of been part of what's happening, I think, in medical education, I think it's become harder for people to figure out what their thresholds for discomfort are. And obviously, the importance of, of learning those and um, becoming accustomed to those is that they don't go away when you're in attending. And um, some of being a doctor is just stamina. So I do think that it's personal um, for people. But I think that, you know, there are obvious problems in our culture that we've become cognizant of as a profession, um, more, I think, in the last seven to 10 years, um, racism, misogyny, uh, the stigma around mental illness, those are very clear problems that we have to remedy. But I think alongside those recognitions, there has been a growing intolerance. And I think a lot of this comes from outside of medicine, but then it, it you know, is it coming from universities? Is it coming from online? the culture at large, that was part of my task um, to figure out. And I don't think there's ever going to be a clear answer, but this burgeoning sort of obsession with wellness and self-care and self-optimization and all of these things that sort of converge to give people the message that discomfort is bad and that 
you should go through life trying to eliminate um, things that are toxic. And so you, I think you asked me how I make these distinctions and maybe it's because I, I was writing about this or I just, I think I'm somebody who has like a very loud internal monologue all the time. And so for me, I mean, basically what it comes down to is saying like, what is good for the patient? <laughs> like you just have to ask yourself that constantly and that doesn't go away when you're an attending. So like one example that, you know, for instance, like if I'm on the consult service and we're going to send somebody for a cath in the morning and I'm about to walk out the door of the cardiology building and I realize that nobody's talked to the patient about the cath and then I think to myself, I'm going to have to walk you know, all the way across to the other building and I'm going to have to wait in line for the elevator and like people are going to have a lot of questions and I'm going to be here another 45 minutes. Like that's like a, a low grade type of discomfort, but that's like an obvious one where like that is more important than my getting home and having more time at home and sitting down and doing whatever else I would do. So I think that's just like one example um, that's an easy one, but I think it always comes down to like, yeah, what feels easy and good to me would be to like go and sit on the couch. But there are all there are countless instances throughout the day where that's not what's good for the patient. Yeah, Dr. Rosenbaum, I, I really appreciate your insight on this. It's so timely. And obviously, with your stature, your position uh, inside of, you know, one of Boston's greatest institutions, you get to see the whole gambit of this. And and I want to ask you, because this is obviously the neurosurgery podcast, so people listening to us have an intrinsic uh, love or desire to be involved in our field. How does being a cardiologist play into this? I, I, I would suggest that maybe, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, that the parallel is that you guys um, have to deal with uh, situations that arise unexpectedly, often at un- inopportune times. Um, the scenarios that play out have major impact uh, to the patients and uh, your decisions, as you've already said, in a real live fire situation, because you're a proceduralist, interventionalist, have major implications to the outcomes of the thousands of patients you treat as a doctor, right? So give us some insight, like how did you come to this, uh, if you will, set of conclusions or ideas that does seem to be very muted in our current medical culture? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I should uh, preface this all by saying, you know, I'm not a proceduralist. So I do like the cognitive aspects of cardiology. I have the most amazing colleagues um, who, you know, are in the cath lab or in the EP lab. So I don't, I don't do like the hardcore, you know, surgical type things that you guys do, but I do have to make, you know, important decisions. And I think cardiology in general still has a culture that um, one could call hardcore, even though I feel like that's like an increasingly taboo type of culture to build. And again, that's all part of it. But I think, you know, so first of all, uh, as a cardiologist, like you do when you're on call, you have to make decisions at a, you know, often when you've been up for a long time that involve like life or death. So you have to learn how to train your mind to be able to do things like that and to be up for a long time. And so that was part of my training. And I think, you know, has served me in terms of how 
the questions I sometimes face now as an attending. But again, I'm not the one who has to come in when somebody's having a STEMI or needs a balloon pump, you know, in the middle of the night. Those are my colleagues. So I think I think they're they're even better trained than I am and more able to have those like that type of uh, technical skill um, that one needs to develop during training. And that's very hard. Um, I think that from a personal standpoint, and I don't know how interesting this will be to your audience, but I was a long distance runner. Um, I started running competitively in high school and then I ran through part of college and then like a little bit competed throughout medical school on in longer distances. And I've always seen running as this metaphor for life, which is that you endure temporary discomfort for a sort of long-term game. And so that, that was like very much a part of my mindset before I even became a cardiologist. I had this coach like before a state meet, I think he had it on a t-shirt and he said, pain is temporary, results are permanent. And that is in my mind like all the time when I'm in the hospital. <laughs> like, And so, so some of it is definitely, you, I mean, maybe that is something that like led me into cardiology because again, um, cardiology is intense. Um, but I think I think a lot of it came from running and just this mantra about appreciating the value of enduring discomfort. You know, I, I really love that metaphor. I uh, I do some running as well, cycling, and I I lift weights. I've been lifting weights for, gosh, almost fifteen years now. And when I get in arguments with people, with medical students or, you know, junior residents, I, I've been getting in more arguments online lately. I guess I have too much free time this, uh, this year <laughs> residency. But um, they, I always say that part of the point of taking call in medical school or having long shifts in residency is that you build your endurance, you build your stamina, and you get used to being tired when you have to function. So that the first time you experience that isn't when you're out in practice with no safety net. And I always use the weightlifting analogy that pick up something heavy enough times and then you could pick up something heavier, right? It's much like the running analogy. But what I really love about uh, the essay that you wrote and, and the fact that you are here voicing these opinions is that it's coming from, as you say, a non-proceduralist. Because we, we've had a lot of episodes of the show lately where... We're talking about taking call, working hard, and it's, you know, neurosurgeons talking to neurosurgeons, and it's kind of an echo chamber because we all like to work hard, and it's, you know, that hardcore nature is very much in our culture as well. So getting this message from a non-proceduralist medical physician, I think is really powerful, and I think that you being the messenger here will speak more powerfully to some of the medical students or trainees who can so easily brush us off as, oh, the neurosurgeons are being intense again. But one of the aspects in your essay that really struck a chord with me because I've been getting in all these arguments is where you highlight that people are afraid to speak up. And because it's, as you said, taboo to voice these hardcore opinions. Um, when I first emailed you, you said, thanks for not hating me when I said <laughs> how much I loved your essay, right? And, and so I think there really is some of that hesitancy for people to speak up about, you know, the desire to work hard and build our stamina and become better physicians for our patients. How do you find the courage yourself to come out in public and endorse these heretical views? And 
what advice could you give to the rest of us who might be silently uh, reading your words and applauding, but also afraid to speak out in public? Yeah, that's a great question. You're right. I I was exquisitely anxious about it. I, I think I remain pretty anxious about it. Every time I see like a tired trainee, I get a, like a pit in my stomach. that I'm like uncaring. Um, so I think that you have but to We've ask- all been tired trainees, right? You were a yes. tired trainee yes. and, and, and look yes. where you are now, right? Yes. Sorry to cut you off, but please continue. No, no. I, so I'm always asking myself, what is my motivation? Like, what is my North Star? And I love medicine, like profoundly. I believe in it. Like, I believe in its nobility. I believe in its good. I believe in its place in society. And I know we have a lot of problems, but like my faith in medicine is is pretty unshakable. And I think that is what guides me and what guided me in this essay is that somehow we've gotten so distracted by this fear of offending trainees or seeming uncaring about them or insensitive to their well-being that we can't even say anymore that this is about our patients ultimately this is about training people to be good doctors and and i don't think you know i actually before i wrote the series i wrote a series about quality and it was essentially arguing that like most of what we've done to improve quality is stupid. It doesn't improve quality. Mm. It distracts all of us. And then at the end of the day, like quality comes down to good doctors. And so I think that those are the things that it motivated me and also gave me the courage to, to do it because I felt very clear in my conviction and also that if the public were to understand sort of the um, this this feeling like there's just this slow degeneration of standards that the public would be outraged because if you speak to people or patients, none of them is going around saying like, oh, our healthcare system is great. And, you know, it's not always that they're upset with doctors, but people, a lot of people get like crummy care for lots of reasons. And I don't think if people really understood what was going on, that they would accept anything less than standards of excellence within medical training. And so I think, I think that's what gave me the courage. Although my, my courage is like, it's fragile, you know, like I don't, I don't think I slept very much this whole week. I'm still very scared. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt anyone. I'm really worried about, like the people who were willing to talk to me anonymous, anonymously that somehow I'm going to end up hurting them. So I think, I think it's, you know, just the fact that you reached out and like it meant something to you and that we're having this discussion makes me feel like it's worthwhile and it's important. Um, but I'm still, I'm still scared. Well, Lisa, I, let me just mirror, uh, JP's comments and say that in the neurosurgery world, uh, we're we're very um, appreciative to read editorials like yours, especially as I already indicated with your stature and your position. Um, it, it means a lot, and it it is such an important. You'd almost say it's it's we could take it for granted, right? That what you're saying is true. And if you think about you treat the cardiovascular system well, if you want to build up cardiovascular 
performance, if you will, you have to apply that load, but you can't apply too much or you could break the system, right? And so if you were to think about the concept of graduated responsibility for trainees, for example, like uh, in, in our field, of course, it's like a surgical technique. You start with the simpler stuff. Can you sew and tie? Can you then cut the skin? Can you start to drill bone? And you work your way up, right, to become hopefully a very accomplished master surgeon. Um, but we struggle also with, with the idea of how much load is appropriate. And if we apply too much load, do we break people that could have succeeded better if we had been a little bit more graduated in that process? And hence, one of the reasons why training is seven years of residency for us, for example, right? How do you see this? Because, you know, you're talking to, you know, what, 10,000 medical students out there, right, so to speak, right? So you see an idea of the pipeline. How do you do this in cardiology? How do you apply that load for for optimization of the trainee, if you will? Well, that's a really, really great question, too. And I think some of it, again, comes back to this very personal nature of tolerance for load. Um, I also I also have to say that I think one of the things that I've observed, so our, our I have this immense privilege of working with like the most amazing cardiology trainees. Like they know more than I do. I just like follow them around and on the consult service and they're, they're exceptional. I think a lot of what's happening is starting like almost like lower down. It's like starting in our universities and now it's percolating up and, and, and then COVID just like pushed us all over the edge in this way that I'm still trying to figure out. And so when I, what I'm trying to get at is how do you separate within any person, like a true physical or intellectual capacity from the narrative about what's acceptable? And I don't think you can change what's intrinsic to people in terms of their physical. And it, I mean, I think that's very hard. Obviously, you can study more and acquire more knowledge and like do something 10,000 times or whatever the magic number is. But what I'm more interested in, because it feels like something that we can change, is a culture that telling us it's too much or that it's not worthwhile. And I think that's within our power to change. Um, and so that's part of also why I wrote the essay, because if the culture can change in one direction, it can also change back. And I was very fascinated by this, like, this notion of social capital, because I have you know, I have this very early memory of, um, I, I did my residency at Mass General and I, we did, um, I guess we did 24 hour calls still. It was right after like duty hours passed. And then in the ICU, we do 30 hour calls. And it was so obvious that like being on call for that long was really good. <laughs> like that's how you, you owned it, you know, like you get to know the patients, you admit them, you see them through something, but I just have this very early memory of like maybe my second night of call. So there are four interns on a team and we all shared all the patients. And then there was a second year resident who to me, like he was a God, like he was a second year resident. But as far as I was concerned, he knew everything. And there was like on my second night of call, I just walked past the room of one of our patients who had end-stage liver disease and needed a paracetesis and it hadn't happened during the daylight hours. And it was like three in the morning. Um, the resident was there doing the paracentesis. And 
that to me was like the epitome of good. And it was very clear in the culture. And I guess, let's see, I started trading in like 2006. So it's not like that, that long ago, but that that was what was prized in residency. Like, this is what it means to be outstanding and not just outstanding, but cool. Like, that's cool. And what I found and continue to find fascinating is like, that's not as cool anymore. And why is that? And so to get back to this question of load, I think that part of what's within our purview as a culture, of, as a profession, but also as a community of people who are trying to train the next generation is to think about elevating in this way that's like socially valued grit and endurance and being hardcore again like it doesn't have to be the end of ambition and it you know we don't have to like pretend that self-care is this like wonderful thing that everybody should aspire to like there's no reason we have to keep saying that i cannot express how much joy i'm feeling right now uh just listening to everything you said in the past few minutes um dr rosenbaum it is I, I think your observation that something's happening in the universities and percolating up is right on the nose. And as you say in the essay, and we're touching on right there, I think it's very much a question of framing uh, psychologically, where something that is uncomfortable or, or physically rigorous or difficult could either be viewed as oppressive and harmful and traumatizing or as a difficult challenge that is an opportunity for growth and improvement as you get through it. And it's something to be, you know, defeated and accomplished and, and become better in so doing. Dr. Wang frequently had a saying when I was there for medical school that I think everyone that works with me hears me repeat once a month when we talk about these things is that you can't just slap a patch on your shoulder and be an astronaut, you have to actually become an astronaut. And so we talk about this a lot for neurosurgery, but just becoming a physician, it's not just that you sign up and get a degree and go have a job, it's becoming a different kind of person who thinks a different way and is capable of doing different things. And maybe anyone can become a physician, but that doesn't mean that anyone can just be a physician. You have to go through the experience of becoming that kind of person. And so I wonder is, because we need to respect your time, and so as we wrap this up, I wonder if you want to just take a moment and speak to those of us who are listening who want to be hardcore because just as much as it it can become taboo and a dirty word to say these things out loud when you're in the training uh, side of things when you when you already have a job and you're a professor but when i was going through medical school and now in training in some circles it can also be taboo to want to be the hardcore person and you know, to say that it's cool to to be there all hours and always doing all the procedures and everything as you express. So maybe just take a moment to talk to the students or the trainees that want to work hard and want to work a lot, but feel like the opportunity is being denied them. Okay, I think I think I'll try to do this by um, through a bit of an indirect route. But I have I work in the most amazing um, division and I have tremendous awe for so many of my colleagues 
and some of my senior colleagues are, you know, world leaders in, in their area of expertise. And sometimes they, and they get invited to, to travel a lot. So sometimes when I'm, if I'm on the consult service, like the, the way we do it is that whoever is on the consult service, people like sign out to. So I've had the experience of covering them when they're gone, various of my colleagues. And they're the type of very old school um, doctors who, you know, know everything about their patients, work all the time. And, um, you know, they still, they have busy clinics and then they come in at night and round. You see them, you know, wearing a sports coat, you know, and, and slacks on a Saturday or Sunday rounding on their patients. And, I have this very early, like early in terms of my own um, time on faculty of covering one of them. And one of his patients paged me very early in the morning and uh, was in rapid AFib. And like I called back on my cell phone and, um, you know, she she was like texting me, but she she wrote something like, can you please tell Dr. You know, X, I'll call him. I know he would want to know. And I don't know why, but that stuff, like to be a doctor who the patient knows would want to know is like such a beautiful, precious thing. Like, and that is something to aspire to. And I think in the systems that we've created where we're, and I am, I am like in many ways, a cardiologist hospitalist, like I come in and I come off, you know, so I, I contribute to this, but that sense among patients that there's somebody out there who cares about you and is thinking about you and will work as hard as necessary to make sure that you're okay is just a rare thing in life. And I have to say, because your audience is surgical, I hear this all the time from patients who've had surgeon surgery. And I think it's super interesting because I feel like surgeons get this bad rap that they like maybe their bedside manner isn't as good or whatever. But when you talk to patients about their surgeons, they often revere them. So this happens a lot, you know, where I will like take care of a patient who had a cabbage 10 years ago and comes in with unstable angina. And they'll be, do you know, do you know, Dr. C, like, you know, he is like my hero. Like, you know, he came in at three in the morning when I was bleeding or, you know, whatever it is. And people remember that they respond to that. And I don't, think that you can be a good doctor without that dedication and investment. I just, I, I think that you can be a brilliant doctor. I think you can be technically good, but I, I don't think that one can truly be an outstanding doctor without going above and beyond. Like our system is too complicated and medicine is too complicated. And there's just always more that you can do for people. And, and our patients perceive that and, it's really cool to go back to this notion of what's cool. Like it's very cool to be a person that can give that to somebody because not everybody can. Well said. Well, Dr. Rosenbaum, um, I want to take a moment and plug your own podcast, which I believe is going to be broadcasting its second season shortly here. It's called Not Otherwise Specified. Why don't you take a moment and please tell our listeners about that show? Yeah, I would love to. So Not Otherwise Specified is a podcast by the New England Journal of Medicine that I host. And we are launching season two on January 31st. 
and you can get it wherever you get your podcast. And the entire season will be focused on some of the challenges in medical training. I actually, I know we're talking about this one essay, but I, um, I wrote four essays. The last one comes out this week um, about about some of these challenges that are are going on in our training environment. So we will be dissecting those in a little more depth. And Lisa, please also direct our audience to uh, what the um, essay is and where they can find it in the New England Journal. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I hope I can actually do this. But if you go to NEJM.org, um, that you should be able to find the essay that we're discussing now. It, <laughs> I can't even remember what it's called. Doing Well While Being Well. I have an editor who writes my amazing titles, so sometimes I can't remember them. But um, is that what it's called? Doing Well While Being Well? Yes. Okay. That's what it's called. And I think all the essays by the last one should go up this week should be um, at NEJM.org and I, I under the Medicine and Society Heading. Phenomenal. We will uh, we will link to the essay we've discussed today, as well as your other essays and your podcast in the show notes for this episode. Um, but Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum, thank you so much for coming on the show at such short notice. Um, you are not alone. There are thousands of us in the country that still like working hard, being hardcore. And um, I, I'm glad that it, it gave you some sense of security to hear uh, what was essentially a fan letter from me. I love writing fan letters. If anyone else would like to reach out to Dr. Rosenbaum about this <laughs> essay or any of her writings, please uh, contact us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. I will forward those messages her way. Um, and, you know, please, please let her know. It's okay to be hardcore and it's okay to say so in public. But uh, for now, Dr. Rosenbaum, I, I truly hope we can speak again in the future. Um, perhaps when uh, the second season of your podcast, not, other, not otherwise specified, is broadcasting, uh, we can talk again to help promote that. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast, Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.